There's been a long tradition of fruitcake making in my family. My great-great-grandmother, my great-grandmother, my grandmother and my mother all made wedding cakes for young couples in our hometown of Newbridge in County Kildare. And they all made Christmas cakes as gifts for those near and dear. Nobody seems to want a fruitcake for a wedding cake these days, so the last wedding cake I made was my own. And that wasn't yesterday or the day before that, I can tell you. But I still bake Christmas cakes. And like all those women before me, I bake a lot of them. Traditions are unexpectedly powerful things. For example, I always feel a bit out of kilter and unprepared if I haven't bought all the ingredients for the Christmas cakes by the end of September. I'd make sure the extra pounds of butter, flour and bags of dried fruit were additional purchases within the weekly shop throughout September so I could spread the cost and be ready for the task ahead. For the first few weeks in October, our home fills with the smells of raisins, sultanas, currants, figs and prunes, soaking in a mixture of citruses, spices and whiskey. Creaming the butter and sugar together, I'd have my son measuring out the flour, chopping the glacé cherries, squeezing the oranges or beating the eggs, just as my mother did with me when I was a child and her mother did with her before that. There's a rhythm and a method to lining the tins with tinfoil and greaseproof paper and wrapping them in folded old newspapers so the outside of the cake won't bake quicker than the centre. And of course, I mustn't forget the official ceremony of the licking of the spoon once the mixture was pressed into its expectant tins. Once baked, the Christmas cakes would all be painstakingly wrapped in greaseproof paper and tinfoil, then stacked and stored in the press. They'd be visited fortnightly though, carefully unwrapped, the surface of each cake was varnished with a little measure of whiskey to keep it moist. The pledge never interferes with the chef, my grandmother always said, as she would rewrap each cake before its next tipple in a fortnight's time. By the middle of December, all the cakes were taken out and a whole other process would begin. I can remember cakes appearing on every surface in my mother's kitchen each day after school. There was never any shop-bought marzipan in our home. The almond paste was made from scratch, rolled out and placed on each cake to dry naturally over the next few days. And the same went for the icing. Bowls and bowls of snow-white icing was whisked and built up in layers upon each cake to dry. In the last couple of days, just before Christmas Eve, each cake was decorated with delicate piping or snowy peaks. My mother would let me create the snow-covered peaks by tapping the iced surface of the cakes with the back of an old butter knife. I'd gently pull little alpine peaks into existence, waiting to be adorned with santies and snowmen, sprigs of holly or miniature robins. Then, on Christmas Eve, each cake was wrapped in a luxurious Christmassy ribbon, boxed up, placed in the car, and off we'd go to deliver our labours of love. All of these rhythms, smells, tastes and tasks flood my senses when I'm making and baking my Christmas cakes. 
memories of days gone by and missed loved ones come rushing to the fore. But these are more than memories. They're a remembering, a bringing to life the presence and the potency of these instrumental women of my past. It brings them close into my proximity, my present, and influences my here and now and my future. On the 9th of December, the Vatican unveiled its annual nativity scene. This year, the scene in St. Patrick's Square pays special tribute to the origins of the beloved Christmas tradition of a crib. It is 800 years since St. Francis of Assisi created the first ever nativity scene on Christmas Eve in Greccio, Italy. In 1223, just a few years before he died, St. Francis desired so much to represent, remember the presence and potency of the poverty that our Lord and Saviour was born into, that he recreated the nativity scene in a nearby cave. He invited his fellow friars and all the townspeople of Greccio to join him in this special ritual. Later, he told a friend, I wanted to do something that will recall the memory of that child who was born in Bethlehem, to see with bodily eyes the inconveniences of his infancy, how he lay in the manger and how the ox and the ass stood by. So he set up an empty manger inside the cave and dressed it with some yellowy sun-kissed hay. He invited two local people to take the place of Mary and Joseph. Accounts differ as to whether he left the manger empty or placed a wax figurine of the infant Jesus there, but he brought a live ox and a donkey. And through those captivating images, sounds, and perhaps not so fragrant fragrances of livestock, he brought the incarnation close to those gathered all around. There was no distance between the original event in Bethlehem and those sharing in its mystery. St. Bonaventure, a contemporary of St. Francis, provides us with an account of the night of this first live nativity scene. He said, the brethren were summoned, the people ran together, the forest resounded with their voices, and that venerable night was made glorious by many and brilliant lights and sonorous psalms of praise. St. Bonaventure goes on to say that Francis stood before the manger, full of devotion and piety, bathed in tears and radiant with joy. He chanted the Holy Gospel and preached about the nativity of the poor king, calling him the babe of Bethlehem. St. Francis's bringing to life and bringing close the first Christmas night became so popular that very soon every church in Italy had its own nativity scene. This Christmas tradition also spread to private homes and institutions, not just initially, but also around the world. Today, it's almost impossible to imagine Christmas without a nativity scene. In his apostolic letter on the Christmas crib, Admirabile Signum, meaning an enchanted image, Pope Francis says, setting up the Christmas crib in our homes helps us to relive the history of what took place in Bethlehem. It touches our hearts and makes us enter into salvation history as contemporaries of an event that is living and real. 
He says in a particular way, the nativity scene has invited us to feel and touch the poverty that God's son took upon himself in the incarnation. Those generations of women in my family that draw close to me as I sit flower, soak fruit and fold in whisked eggs from a recipe written in my great-great-grandmother's handwriting. These are the same women who passed on the tradition of a Christmas crib in our homes. For generations, these women recreated the same wonder and awe in the hearts and on the faces of their children when they took the time to pass on the faith so simply yet so powerfully through the little wooden stables, tiny plaster of Paris figurines, a tinfoil star, some straw and a snowy cotton wool. They took the time to teach us that the Christmas crib was not just another Christmas decoration in our home and they were patient as they glued back dropped figurines we couldn't resist touching and feeling. They took the time to teach us to place Mary and Joseph, the ox and the donkey, and the empty crib first, to later add the newborn Jesus after midnight mass along with the shepherds and the sheep, and to wait until the 6th of January, the Feast of the Epiphany, to add the three wise men. They're the women who took the time to dress us in oversized shirts from our father or grandfather, to dress our heads in checkered tea towels or cardboard crowns, to borrow blue dressing gowns with plaited rope belts and woolly jumpers so we could participate in a centuries-old Catholic tradition of bringing the Christ child close to us and all those gathered in our churches, school halls or classrooms for the Christmas nativity. As I gaze across at the Christmas crib in my home today with a freshly made cup of tea, and a slice of our great-great-grandmother's Christmas cake. I'm reminded of all the times I eagerly waited to set up the manger as a child, or hoped to be chosen to place the newborn baby Jesus in his crib. I'm also reminded to continue sharing this simple but powerful traditions with my now adult son, and maybe someday my grandchildren. So generations to come, might continue to share in the mystery of God who became the babe of Bethlehem in order to let us know how close he is to each of us. In wishing you all a very happy Christmas, I would love to play O Little Town of Bethlehem, having just shared about the babe of Bethlehem that St. Francis so lovingly uh, recreated for those that night in Greccio. I've chosen this piece because I had the honour and the privilege some time ago to visit not only the site of the nativity, but also the shepherd's cave in Bethlehem on the 21st of March on the day of my birthday and got the extraordinary opportunity to sing this hymn at that time of the year as we celebrated mass together as pilgrims on the way. Mm -hmm. 